0: Um, We'll do that occasionally. So today we're starting a new series uh, called Heal. And um, let me just tell you as a pastor what my hope is for this series. I've been thinking about this a lot and praying about this a lot the last couple of months. Part of the reason why I don't teach throughout the summer is I want to give you guys a chance to hear a different voice. But also a chance just to pray through and think through what to teach in the fall. And um, so I really sort of thinking this through and we decided to... um. Uh, really take something we did a couple of years ago through something called Heal Groups and make this into a series. And so I want to make sure you know, though, this is not just a series like, okay, well, if I've got major family issues or major this or major that, um, it's only for that kind of person. That's not what I'm talking about here. The big picture of this series, the big question I want you to be wrestling with as we go through the series is how do we heal from sin but also from being sinned against? So the big question is, going to be, I mean, it's a big word here, going to be sanctification. That is spiritual growth. Uh, We talk about justification being what happens. Um, You're in legal right standing before God when you become a Christian. But sanctification is what takes place the rest of your walk with Jesus, and it's a long version of saying spiritual growth. And so we're going to be looking at this big question of how do we heal from sin, but also from being sinned against. And as a pastor, I've been in this church for uh, 10 years. I know that um, there are just countless stories throughout this room of of your own sin, but also of you being sinned against in some really grievous ways. And I know that to be true. Um, one of the hard parts of being a pastor is that I can't get to know every single person's story in the same way. But I know from knowing many of you and from uh, being a part of this church for a long time, that just it goes with the territory. As a pastor, I've got a front row seat to a lot of sin in the church. And so I want you to know this morning that the the purpose of this series is to really dig deep into the scriptures and and figure out how is it that we really heal from sin and from being sinned against? How is it that Jesus really changes us as we walk with him throughout our lives? I know that most of us, we think of um, Christianity as just, okay, I believe this set of truths and I get saved. And then you think that It's just sort of like hang on to the rest of your life until you you die, right? That's how we we look at it a lot of the time. And um, I think Jesus has a lot more for us than that. And he wants you to really um, deal with sin, um, not just what you commit, but also what's been committed against you. And so we're going to look at the scriptures these next uh, several weeks and and look into that. Uh, One part I'm really excited about as well is we're going to take like a – If you were with us during our Hosea series, we did like a series within a series. It's kind of like the whole uh, dream within a dream thing, you know? So, we're going to do a series within a series here. And in about four weeks, we're going to do a series on emotion and and how Christians should view emotion. And all the guys are like, oh, great. Emotion? Really? We're going to talk about emotion? And here's the reality, though. We're going to get into um, that topic as it relates to our spiritual growth. Because I would say this that many of you are the, what, what you do is you allow that to be what derails you, is your emotions, how you feel about things, whether you're a guy or a girl, we still treat them the same way very often. And so we're going to um, look at that for about four weeks in the middle of the series as well. Uh, so, so the big question is, how do we change? After salvation, how do we change? So today we're going to define uh, the problem, the problem that keeps us from changing, the problem that you and I have to acknowledge if we are truly going to Grow in Christ and change and be sanctified as we walk with him. So I want you to go all the way back to the beginning of your Bible. Turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And I think sometimes we kind of gloss over these very familiar passages. John 3.16 would fall into that category. You've got it memorized. You know what it says. And so you're thinking, how is Dave going to share something new from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1? Well, I may not, but I want you to focus on this passage here. Genesis 1, verse 1, and it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the reason why I bring you to that first passage this morning is because I want you to see this morning that um, as Christians, we believe in a God who is eternal we believe in a God who spoke everything that we see in the world today. We we believe He spoke it into existence. Now I know that sounds like a crazy thought, a crazy idea. And if you're someone who's not a Christian yet, and you're very skeptical, and you're just very scientific minded, I want to um, sort of challenge you just a little bit this morning that um, that no matter no matter what, no matter how you believe we got here whether it's God creating us by speaking into existence or through evolution, whatever explanation you want to ascribe to for how everything began, I'll tell you this morning that whatever you ascribe to, um, it requires great faith. And any creation story is going to sound crazy on the surface, right? I mean, so if someone doesn't want to believe that God spoke things into existence, okay, what is the alternative? The alternative is that things happened by chance, that we came from monkeys, that um, all life just sort of came out of a primordial suit and just sort of invented itself. Now, now, is that not crazy as well? And so I admit to you that it does sound crazy that a God spoke everything into existence, but I'll also tell you that any creation story or narrative is going to sound pretty insane and crazy because it's pretty crazy that we're actually having this conversation right now on a speck of dust that is rotating around a star in the universe, right? Like, that's just a crazy reality. And so, any explanation of how we got here is going to be a pretty crazy, um, story, right? And so, um, I want to, uh, you may have heard of this guy named Richard Dawkins. He's a professor, um, was a professor at uh Oxford University, a really intelligent man. He's one of the world's most famous atheists, written some books, one's called The God Delusion. Um he really does not like um anyone saying they believe in a creator God. He's an atheistic evolutionist from Oxford, and he's written books that kind of counteract what we believe. And and in an interview um that I heard from him recently, He's being interviewed and, um, and he's just, as he's making fun of the whole Genesis narrative that God spoke everything into existence, that there's this creator God out there, as he's making fun of that idea, the interviewer asks him, they say, okay, so how do you think life came to earth? And his statement was, I don't know, possibly aliens? And, and I'm thinking, do you not realize the irony of what you just said? Like you're gonna you're gonna make fun of of the creator God the creator story, and when someone asks you how life may have gotten here on Earth, your response is possibly aliens. And if you don't see the craziness of that, then um, I rest my case. And, and so any any explanation for how we got here is gonna sound crazy to really any of us. And so if you're someone who's a skeptic this morning, I want to remind you of that that. That The fact that, that um, we believe God created this world with his words should not be what keeps you from faith because whatever you say you believe, that also requires great faith. I'll also tell you that you can believe, choose to believe in an eternal God or choose to believe in eternal matter. Either way, something has to be eternal. So if the idea of eternal God sounds really insane to you, that it's either an eternal God or it's eternal matter. Like, things were just always here. And once again, I'll tell you that I think it requires greater faith to believe in eternal matter than it does to believe in an eternal God. I still think believing in an eternal God requires faith. I'm not downplaying that. But it requires also great faith to believe in any kind of narrative you want to believe in about how the world began. You know, one of the things that... um. We learned about on the mission trip to New York City was uh, we went and visited a Hindu temple. And uh, it was interesting hearing this man talk about the Hindu faith. He talked about how um, that Hindus are often accused of being people that believe in many, many, many gods. And he said, no, we don't believe in many gods. We believe there's one God. But there's over 300 million manifestations of that God. And so he said, we believe in one God. But that God manifests himself through creation in over 300 million manifestations. This is why you go into a Hindu temple they will have all kinds of statues of all kinds of created beings because they're trying to represent the many facets of who they believe God to be. And so what they do, though, is they don't separate the creation from the creator. They see them as kind of one and the same. There's, there's creator, but there's also creation, and the life cycle just goes around and around and around. This is what's called pantheism. This is why they will see a tree and have no problem saying that tree is divine. It wasn't just made by a divine being, but it it, it, it itself is divine. Now we would say that we believe God is divine. We believe that creation is valuable. We, we believe God expressed Himself, part of who He is. He, he, cre- he created things, and that's an expression of who He is as God. But we would never look at a tree and say, That tree is God, or that cow is God. We, as Christians, would not say that. We believe there's a separation between Creator and creation. We see them as separate. And so, if God created everything, the question we have to ask ourselves is, What does that mean? For us, I want you to flip over to Revelation chapter 4, all the way to the end of your Bibles. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. We're going to take you to several passages this morning. So, Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. And it says Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor. And power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So I want you to see this, because what it's saying is that because God created everything, because God created all that we see in the world, um, I want you to see this. It says we we are He is to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. I want you to think about how crazy it is that you and I will turn our back on this God and go our own way based on this text. How crazy is it that you and I will turn our back on him? And this this verse says that He, because he's he's created everything, that, that he is to receive glory and honor because of who he is as the God that creates everything. So if God creates everything that we see, who decides to, um, who gets to decide how things should work on this earth? I mean, it's not a trick question. Who gets to decide how things should operate on this earth if God creates everything? Who gets to decide what's right and wrong based on who created everything? Because he creates all things, he's worthy of, he's, he's worthy of glory, he's worthy of honor. This means that you and I don't get to make our own rules. I know, as as high schoolers, you're in that prime spot of life where you think to yourself that you are the best person to be in charge of your own life, right? This is a source of conflict with parents, source of conflict with authority, is that you think that that you are the best person to be sovereign over your own life and to decide what gets to happen with your life. Um, I had a friend, um, I had a friend that. Uh, used to work with us in the high school ministry. I'm not going to mention names this morning because you guys don't even know who this guy is. But many years ago, this guy worked with me in the high school ministry here at TBC. And um, when I first came on staff here at the church, and uh, he and I used to go and pray. We used to go to the high schools and pray together. We used to walk around Bilton High and Temple High and just pray for the campuses. And this is a guy I would share meals with occasionally. And um, a good friend of mine at the time. And he, he left our ministry several years ago and he still attended our church. And just recently, um, he had decided to leave his wife and move in with somebody else, another woman. And so um, this man, I talked to this man recently and I said, hey, I'm, I'm going to ask you to repent. You're like, you know where I stand on this whole issue. I'm going to ask you to repent, turn from your sin and turn back towards Christ and move back in with your wife. That's what I'm asking you to do. As your brother in Christ, that's what I'm asking you to do. And his response to me was, you know, Dave, I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life. And I said, Yeah, you've, maybe you've got happiness, but you lack joy. Because when you are living in disobedience to Him, you will not have joy. You might have superficial, emotional happiness, but you will lack true joy. And so He's living in a place where He is saying, God, I don't care what you say about sex outside of marriage, I don't care what you say about adultery, I don't care what you say about marriage commitment. I'm going to live however I want to live. And this is the exact same thing that you and I do in our walk with God. We turn our back on him. We say, God, I've got it figured out better than you. I'm going to go my own way, and that's how I'm going to live my life. Someone shared a quote with me yesterday uh, by a guy named Jay Vernon McGee. He says this. He says, this is God's universe, and he does things his way. Now, you may have a better way of doing things, but you don't have a universe, all right? So if if you and I want to change the rules, there's a way to go about doing that, but you're incapable of creating your own universe in which you are sovereign over that universe. And so we'll often live this way, like, you know, I've got my own world, I'm going to be in charge of that and say what goes there, but the reality is you and I don't have that ability to create one, right? And so we can't be sovereign over our own reality. So God creates man. He creates man in his own image. But then he looks at man and he sees something wrong. He sees that man is alone. He says it's not good. In Genesis it says that he sees that man's alone and says it's not good. So he puts Adam to sleep, the first surgery in history. He takes out one of Adam's ribs and he fashions it into a woman. Now, once again for the skeptic, I know you're thinking, so God took a rib and he whittled a woman out of that? Like what what in the world do you people believe, right? In fact, if you know um David Guinea's up here in the front row, he's uh, you can raise your hand. Um he just he just experienced something kind of like this recently where he um he had he had to kind of he, he had a, a little nose issue and so um doctors uh cut into his rib, took out a little piece of a bone there. And refashioned his nose. You've had plastic surgery. How cool is that? Isn't that awesome? And so, um, so, so he's had like, he has like a new nose now. And so doctors can do some wonderful things. They can take a piece of a rib and make it into a guy's nose, right? Um, but a doctor can't exactly take a rib and turn it into a woman, right? God can do that. Doctors cannot do that kind of thing. And so we don't, I want you to hear this, though. You might ask the question, well, why would God, why did he create Eve in this way? Um, Why does God use Adam's rib to create Eve? Genesis chapter 2, turn back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verses 22-25, tells us the answer to this question. Genesis 2, verses 22, we'll start there. It says, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. So how did God make how did God make the animals? How did God make the animals? You remember? What does he use to create the animals? What's that? Dust, dirt. How does God make Adam? Louder, I can't hear you. From dust. All right. So how does he make Eve? The rib. So why does God change up the scheme when he creates the woman? I think this verse actually tells us, tells us why. I think from the beginning, listen, why does God take Adam to make Eve? I think he does that because from the beginning he wants them, he wants to show their oneness. So he takes Adam and he creates Eve instead of making her out of dirt because, listen, everyone knows that the woman is like, the creme de la creme of creation, right right and so um so God wants to show God wants to show God wants to show us I think there is creating even this way that um that there are that they're one there's a oneness between them, and so we see this play out even in some uh more passages we'll see this morning. it also says in verse twenty four it says uh because she 's taken from the man that a husband and a wife they're to leave their parents and are joined together. Hold fast means that he stays committed to her. They're in this relationship. He stays committed to her. And hold fast means that he stays in that relationship with her. Becoming one flesh, um, is, it means sexual. All right? I think we forget sometimes that God created sexuality. You know, sex is a confusing thing for, for people, especially your age, because... It's the only thing that is sin during one part of your life, but not sin during another part of your life. You know, murder's not like that, right? Like it's it, we we don't tell you like you can't murder anyone until you get married. You know, after you get married, murder whoever you want to marry. After, murder after that, right? We don't say that because murder's always wrong, and so it's weird to. Say to you guys, okay, sex before marriage is is wrong and sinful. Sex after marriage is totally part of God's plan. It's the only thing I can think of in life that's like that, that changes at at certain points of your life um, the rightness and wrongness of it. And so it's confusing to you, especially at your age, as to why that is. But I'll say this. If God created sex, then who gets to, to decide the rules for sex? God does. And listen. I know from um i mean I, I hear stories all the time of people that go to our church and, and even people in this room of just things you're involved in, um not just like sexual activity, but other things that come along with that, like um sending someone pictures of yourself yes, i've heard texting inappropriate things, yes, I've heard inappropriate relationships, this guy's dating this girl, meanwhile he's with this girl, yes, i've heard. And I hear things all the time about people at our church from other people and so on. Just they'll tell me, hey, you know, so-and-so is with so-and-so. I'm like, wait, what? And so here's the deal, though. If God created this, then who gets to decide how it plays out? God does. God does. And I want to be real clear this morning. If, you are, if you're involved in anything sexual with anyone, right, before marriage, It's sin. It's sin. It's rebellion. It's not just sin. hey, don't do that. It is rebellion against the God who created it. As Revelation 4.11 said, he is worthy of glory and honor because he created everything. And to go against that, to go around his plan, is to be in rebellion against the God who created something like sex and sexuality. And so I don't want to just leave you hanging there and say, I want you to see why this morning, why that is sin. Okay, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Look at Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. Looking at verse 31. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I want you to focus on verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So one minute Paul's talking about marriage, husband, wife, becoming one flesh. The next minute he's talking about Christ and the church. And you might ask yourself the question, well, why, how can he just switch gears, like talking about marriage, husband, wife, becoming one flesh. Next, he's talking about Christ and the church. What does Christ and the church have to do with marriage? And the answer is everything. This might be a revelation to some of you this morning, but have you ever wondered why God gave us marriage? Have you ever wondered why he gave us males and females? Now, I know you probably asked that question before, like, why, the girls have asked the question, why are there guys, right? The guys ask the question, why are there females? It doesn't make any sense. Like, I want to, here's, here's, here's the deal, guys, is that if, um, why would God create two genders that are so polar opposite in so many areas of life? I mean, wouldn't a lot of conflict be taken care of if we were just, like, cells that reproduce, like, asexually, Right? There's no, nothing involved there. It's just like you just kind of reproduce yourself somehow, right? We all just lay eggs somehow, right? I'm sorry to give you bad visuals this morning. I apologize. But I'm just trying to break it down for you here. And so listen, listen. Bring it back. Bring it back. So um, but why would God do that? I mean, think of all the drama that we be gotten rid of if there was no marriage, no males, no females. So wouldn't that make things easier? Verse 32, I think Paul tells us why. Paul's saying that marriage was created as a picture of Christ and the church. This is why God created marriage. He's saying that the mystery has been revealed. The mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That when a man and a woman, when they get married, they they covenant together in relationship. And that covenant relationship is meant to be a picture of Christ's covenant relationship with the church. And this is why God created marriage. And this is why anything sexual outside of marriage is sin, because he creates physical oneness to be expressed once two people, one man, one woman, enter a covenant relationship. A covenant is a relationship based on a promise. And this covenant relationship paints a picture of his covenant relationship to the church. And so while this talk about marriage when we're trying to define the problem of sin this morning, it's simple because God created us for relationship with him, but also with each other. And there's one thing that separates us from God, and it's sin. And there's one thing that separates us from others, and it's sin. Think about any conflict you've had recently. The root of it is always going to be sin. Any separation between us and God before Christ is going to be there because of sin. There's nothing else that can separate you from God except for sin. And it separates every human being from God before they come to know Christ as their Savior. And is there anything else in the world more destroyed by sin than marriage. Is there anything else in the world more destroyed by sin than the male-female relationship? Because what you'll see is, as God meant for that relationship to point people to himself, and the relationship he has with with himself and the church, when that thing goes bad, do you see how God's name is affected by that? How many kids grow up in homes that are broken homes and say, you know what, I want nothing to do with God? because of what I saw growing up. God's name is tainted because of what what people see very often, even in those troubled homes, those marriages. God's name is tainted because of that. The pain of divorce, I know for a fact, has sent shockwaves throughout this room and this church. There's no getting around that. And so this is why um, I think what happens this is why some people live together before marriage because they just, they've seen so many bad things with marriage and they think, I want to make sure this is going to be the right person, so I've got to move in with them before marriage so we can see if this is going to work. And I understand the logic of that, but we don't get to decide that. We don't get to make the rules. And I'll even tell you this morning that, that um, the stats show if someone treats marriage like that on the front end, They are more likely to get divorced later on in life because of how they started that relationship. So there's no question that we see the pain of sin today. But if we're going to really understand sin, we've got to go back to the Genesis once again. So turn back with me to Genesis chapter 3, looking at verses 1 to 6. Genesis 3, verses 1 to 6. We go back here to the fall, the first sin. Now, if you're new to the Bible, I mean, I'll tell you once again, we, we don't believe this is fairy tale. We don't believe this is made up. We believe this really, truly happened. And I'll remind you again that, yes, it requires faith, just like whatever you believe requires faith. And so we believe this actually took place. And so in, in verse 1, right away we see that Satan causes doubt by distorting what God said. Because what did God actually say, if you remember? Did God say, did God say, Satan says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God say that? No, they would have starved, right? He says, you can't touch this one tree. That's it. Every other tree you can have. And so Satan, by, by distorting God's words, Satan is trying to distort her view of God and, 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 and cause her to doubt God's goodness. And this is the same thing Satan does with us. He appeals to our flesh He gets us to doubt God. He gets us to doubt God's goodness and make you think that God is a killjoy. Make you think that God has not your best, but your worst in mind. This is how Satan operates. Look at verse 4. It says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes that the tree was was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The crazy thing about this story is that um, Satan's actually telling a half-truth. He's speaking somewhat truthfully. He says, God knows that when you eat of this fruit, you're going to become like God. And here's how he's corrected that, because once they eat of that fruit, they're going to now know good and evil, and God knows good and evil. So in one sense, they will be like God. But I want you to see here the progression of what, um, what happens here. Eve sees the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Now watch this. She sees it's good for food. She sees it as attractive, and that's going to make her wise. This is just how you and I get drawn into sin, because sin almost always meets a practical need in our life. Sin almost always meets a pragmatic need in our life. It's convenient. It's the easiest course. It's the easiest route for her. It was going to, it was going to give her food. Like it was going to satisfy her hunger, a real practical need for her, right? I mentioned to you last week a couple I talked with a while back who wanted to get married at our church, and they were living together, sleeping together. And um, when I said to them, I said, you know, I'm going to ask you to, to move out, do this the right way. Um, and their statement was, you know, we can't do that. We can't afford that. Money. And so sin always meets a pragmatic need for us usually. But it starts there. But then sin also... Um, Very often, you and I fall into sin because it meets some other bigger need that we have. In this case, she wants to be like God. In this case, she wants to be wise, just like God is wise. And if you look at any sin that you and I commit, it's not just about meeting a practical need. Usually, it's because we fall into that sin also because we're looking for something even greater than that because of that sin. And so if you're dating that guy or that girl who's an unbeliever and you call yourself a believer, Why are you doing that? Because you don't want to be lonely. It's meeting a practical need. Your identity is based on your status. That's a deeper need. And so you're chasing after this guy or girl because of your own identity. You don't see your identities in Christ. And so we very often chase after sin because of the practical stuff, but also the deeper stuff. In this case, for Eve, it's she wants to be made wise just like God is wise. I want you to turn back over to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. The first sin wasn't just about eating a piece of fruit. It was about a lot more than that. It's about trying to become like God. And so as a result of Adam and Eve's sin, God's relationship with mankind is broken beyond repair. And so we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, look there with me if you will. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. When I read those, that, those verses, some pretty intense words, dead. Sons of disobedience, passions of our flesh, desires of the body, children of wrath. And for those of you raised in the church, maybe you haven't done some of the big sins, as we call them in our culture, and you're going to read that passage, you're going to say, that doesn't sound like me, that sounds like somebody else. But I'll tell you that if you're, I don't care where you're from this morning, but, um, but every Christian, this verse is true of every Christian before they came to know Christ. We were dead in our sins apart from Christ. This verse is absolutely true of every single person in the room, whether you're a Christian um, at a young age or an older age. We're dead in our sins before Christ. This is really why I hate when people say things like, I've got a boring testimony. Uh, Church kids often say this, like, I don't have a crazy story about drugs and so on. I've just got a boring testimony. I was saved when I was four or seven. I never did anything that bad. And I hate when I hear people say that because the reality is you were dead in your sins without Christ. Listen, Jesus Christ breathed new life into you if you're a believer. Like he did the work. Like he resurrected you spiritually. Is resurrection boring? I mean, is someone coming back from the dead, is that boring? If you think of yourself as having a boring testimony, Jesus Christ breathed new life into you. And I'll tell you this, that if you say about yourself, I've got a boring testimony, underneath that statement is really an attitude like the Pharisees and self-righteous. Because what you're saying is, I'm really not that bad. I'm really not that lost. I'm really not that dead before Christ. Jesus Christ breathed life into you. And that's never boring. Resurrection is never boring. So we defined for you this morning the problem of sin. And we're going to kind of leave you hanging there because I want you to um understand how this will tie into next week. And we're really late right now, so I want you to uh leaders to pick out like three or four good questions off your off your discussion sheets at your tables and uh and do those questions right now. Three or four good questions.